Hey, we're so excited about today, uh, excited about to bring you the scripture from James chapter 4. The title of the message is this, How to Get Closer to God. How to get closer to God. And so if you're new, we want to welcome you. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Uh, our goal in our journey here is to try to bring Jesus into our everyday life. That's why we're going through the book of James here. And James is just like dropping some bombs on us, like truth bombs that we're going to get this morning. But they're going to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. And so the Word of God never gets old. It never stops being true. It never stops being useful. It is insanely relevant to our lives. And so if you're new to church, you're going to learn five keys, five ways to get closer to God. So if you would please stand. I'm reading to you the most powerful book in the world, words that are breathed by God. And so if you want to stand in honor of the Scriptures, I'm going to be reading from James chapter 4. The Scripture is going to be on the screens there. And I am reading from the New Living Translation. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says this. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. And humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for speaking to us from your word. I pray that we would step into uh, a life of obeying you. Father, I pray that we would step into a life of hearing from you, and that your words would make a difference in our lives, and that we would live them out by your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So James begins in James chapter 4, verse 1, and he says this. What is causing the quarrels and conflict or fights among you? That's a pretty good question to ask, don't you think? Like, what is causing the fights among us? Like last year, for example, did you have any quarrels or fights, or did you get irritated? Did you have any issues with people last year by a show of hands? Come on, in the cars, you can show me. Yeah, yeah, we all have. How many feel like maybe you've even been a little bit in like constant argument mode, constant conflict mode with the kids or whatever? And so the context here is that James is writing to people who believe in Jesus, who are fighting, who are arguing, who are bickering, and who actually are being a little violent towards one another. Now, I know that most of us, from time to time, we have conflict. And sometimes that conflict is birthed out of legitimate, wrong 
that has been done to us, harm that has been done to us, and some fights and some conflict, some quarrels, they're absolutely legitimate. We get that. But James is talking about quarrels and fights that have their origin within you. He says, don't they come from the evil desires within you? Here's the source. Here's the reality. Here's why we fight. Ding, ding, ding. The conflict, he says, the fight is within you. So let me unpack that. He's saying that the issue is not about them out there. We always think that the issue with my problems, my fighting, my irritation, my getting frustrated, it's all about them out there. And James says, no, the focus not is just them out there. Focus is not uh, your coworker or your spouse or your kids or them that hurt you or them out there that betrayed you or talking trash about you or your crazy siblings, or your parents. That's not the issue. It's not them out there, he's saying. The problem, he says, that comes within you. And so the battle he's talking about is a battle that all of us have within us. The reason that we fight and we quarrel is what he's saying here, is that there's something that's going on on the inside of us that comes to expression on other people. So James is saying that if there's some sort of desire that you have within you, uh, maybe that is causing the fussing and the frustration and the quarreling and the irritability that's directed at another person. So the fight maker, he's saying, is not only them out there, but actually inside you. He's saying that we're abounding in our wants, abounding in our desires, and that's why we have a lot of conflict. He says here, continuing, he says, you want or you desire what you don't have. So here's the root cause. Here's the source of our quarreling and bickering and fighting, much of it. It's because if you don't get what you, you want. For example, think about this. In the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of people being quarantined, there you are at home and bored, and you see, turn on TV, there are some people at, uh, at the beach. And thinking, I would love to be at the beach. And here I am stuck at home and quarantined. And, and so it just fires you up there. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're, and you're out of work. And you're thinking to yourself, dang, all these other people are getting jobs and I lost my job and I just wish I had a job. Or maybe it's about a relationship where you see your friends, they have a, a great marriage or a great relationship or a great boyfriend or a great girlfriend. And there you are and you're thinking, I don't have any of that. I'm trying to live for God and they have a great marriage and my marriage is on the rocks and, and you start to desire what they have. Well, that's what he's talking about, that it comes from within you. So what he's saying is that we have a battleground going on within us. And the battleground is this. The battleground is all about what you don't have. In other words, the position that you don't have. Maybe the, the, the prominence that you don't have. Some passion that you don't have. Maybe it's a pleasure that you don't have. Maybe a, like you want power, but you don't have it. Maybe you want to be recognized and you're not. There's a desire to have. There's things that we want to have, things that we want to possess, relationships. Maybe the beach house that you, you want to have, but you don't have. Maybe the desire to feel. You want to feel good about yourself. You want to feel maybe comfortable, and you don't have that, and you desire that. Maybe there's things that you want to be. You want to be popular. You want to be prominent. Maybe you want to be right, and you argue because you got to be right all the time. Or you want to impress people, or you want more whatever, fill in the blank. James is saying that you fight because of what you don't have here. You desire what you don't have. 
So that's just a reality that we live in, that we have these unfulfilled desires within us, and they cause conflict. Maybe then what happens is we get jealous, we get envious about what others have. So what do we do? Like, what's the key to this problem? Well, here's the answer. Focus on what you do have and fight to be thankful. Focus on what you do have and fight to be thankful. I might not have the dream machine that some, somebody else has, but at least I got a machine that'll like get me around town. May, I remember when I was in Africa, and I was a, I was a conference speaker, right? And you kind of think that you're going to kind of get minimal levels of treatment being like a conference speaker. And so I'm getting ready the first day of the conference, and I'm thinking like, okay, I wonder where I'm going to take a shower. And a guy walks up to me and gives me a little cup, a little cup about this big, a little plastic blue cup, and I had some water in it. And I said, um, I said, what is this for? He said, this is your shower. I said, okay. I said, like, where am I taking a shower? He goes, right over there, uh, there's a, that, that uh, kind of concrete area, open air. Just go over there and pour it over your head, and that's how you take a shower. I said, okay, I'll take a shower. So that, every day I took my shower, like poured a little blue cup of hot water over my head, and that was it. So when I got up this morning, I'm taking a shower, and, and my regular shower, I'm thinking, this is awesome. And I reflected back on Africa and that little blue cup, putting it over my head. So maybe you don't have, like, the best thing, but at least you got, a, like, transportation. I mean, maybe it, it's held together with duct tape and tomatoes for tires, but at least you got something you can drive. See, you had to fight sometimes to be thankful for what you do have. Maybe you got aches and pains, but at least you got air in your lungs, you know what I'm saying? Maybe you don't have a nice furniture or whatever, but at least you got a, a roof over your house. And so just be thankful for what you do have. The Bible puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says, in everything complain. No, I didn't say that. I was checking to see if you were listening. No, it says in everything. And everything says what? Give thanks. And so, so you learn, it says really it's God's will that you would build this into your life. You'd build this, this attitude of gratitude into your life. That is a way that you can overcome this. Because think about it. If you live with these unfulfilled desires and you see everybody's got all the things that you want and you're not grateful, you're not grateful, then you could easily be overcome by jealousy and envy. But uh, he goes on to say this in verse 2. Now he says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. What is this talking about? But prayer, really, right? He's talking about prayer. Maybe you began to pray and you quit and you gave up. So you don't have it because you didn't pray and ask God for it. Or you quit too quickly. Maybe God, there's so much that God would have for you that you don't have that's only a prayer away. So we don't ask God. In other words, we don't look to the right source. We're looking to the wrong sources. We look to people sometimes to fulfill all of our needs rather than look to God to fulfill our needs. So what James is saying is, hey, sometimes you need to stop expecting people to fulfill all your needs. You have not because you don't ask God. And so how are we doing there in the chat online? How are we doing there in prayer and asking God for what we need? Now, he's going to talk about there's a problem. There's a problem with prayer, and here's the problem. And all of us have done this, and I have done this. He says this. And even when you ask, another truth bomb, here it comes, you don't get it because why? Your motives are all wrong. You're only asking it for your pleasure. So what he's saying is, and what I'm asking you is, 
Have you ever asked God for something with the wrong motive? Come on, baby, beginning with me, we all have. I've done it so many times I could retire if I got a dollar for every time I did it. So he's saying that, look, we can all be guilty of this. Just here it is. Here's what it looks like. Just kind of playing out your life there. Got my goals, got the things that I want, got the things that I want to accomplish. And I'm kind of, sort of, half-hearted praying something like, yeah, God, if you could just help me with this, make it happen. That would be awesome, God. That would be awesome. And so now, this is not saying, this is not saying that you should be a little noodle and not pray and ask God and have big dreams. It's not saying you shouldn't set goals. It's not saying you shouldn't aggressively pursue things. It's not saying you should sit back and just be passive. You're never going to graduate. You're never going to be in your career. You're never going to be a doctor or whatever you want to be if you take that posture. But what do we do? What do we do? How do we sort out that my motives are wrong? You just pray and you filter it through this. Are my prayers that I'm praying, the answer that I'm looking for, is that just to gratify me or is that to glorify God? Oftentimes we just want to our, our motives are not pure, and our motives can be off in our prayers. Or we can say, God, just give me this job because this is what I want. Or we can say, God, give me this spouse, give me this relationship, give me this boyfriend, give me this girlfriend, give me this fill-in-the-blank here. And there's really no checking the motives. There's really no evaluating the motives. There's really no, not my will, but your will be done. There's no asking God or saying, God, I genuinely know this. I genuinely know that what you have for me is better than anything that I could ever hope for myself, anything that I could ever create for myself. And so, Lord, I just want your plan to be what I'm going to run to. I want your plan to be what I'm going to cling to, your plan to be what I'm going to go after. Now, Lord, this is what I want, but I know that if this is not part of your plan, then don't do it. But if it is, then help me to get there. And we can spend so much time thinking about our own plans and our own needs and our own wants that God's will is ultimately laid aside. But we need to recognize that it is the best thing that could ever happen to our lives. That His path, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, the will of God is what you want for your life. So James is saying this. We're called to include God in our prayers. Having goals is great, but having goals and not including God in the goals is not great. And now James says in verse 4, it's kind of harsh. It's kind of in your face. He says, you adulterers, in other words, you spiritual adulterers who, who have had an affair with the world, and are like, well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Verse 4, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? And I say it again. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Well, what is he talking about here? He's saying this. He's saying that, hey, it's not about, he's not talking about who you've been cheating on. He's talking to the church, not who you've been looking at, not about somebody crazy out there smoking crack. That's not, he's not saying that's the, that's the one that's the enemy of God. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about church folk. This is written to church people. He's saying, there's church people that are the enemy of God. Watch, we're going to unpack this here. So what he's saying is, when you begin to flirt with the world's values, you say yes to being the enemy of God. 
He said, when you let the world's values and value system begin to infiltrate your thinking, begin to change your mind on how your stance there, James says, if you start doing that and flirting with the values of the world, you then are at odds with God. You're at odds with God. You become the enemy of God, and you begin to think as the world begins to think. You begin to make your life blend so effortlessly with what the world looks like that people don't even know where you stand. They don't even know who you, like what you are. So you become a friend of the world when you do that. And so James is saying this. And friends then, by the way, completely, utterly different than friends today. When we think about friends and we read that, okay, friend, you know, it's just kind of like, hey, here's my friend, Ron. He's my good friend. Hey, Ron, did you meet Pete? And Pete says, hey, asked me, he says, well, where, where's Ron from? I, well, he's my good friend. I don't even know where he lived. Ron, where do you live? And we're, we're like that in American culture. We're like, yeah, we're good friends. I, we're, we're not really good friends. This is talking about friendship here, that you're doing life deeply together, where you are sharing all things in common. It's that friend that you only have like one, two, three of those friends in your life, maybe in your lifetime. So when it says friendship, it's an invitation into uh, doing deep light, doing life deeply. It's not just superficial. I've got a zillion Facebook friends. And so what it's saying is this, saying that, hey, you decided to have a friendship with God. And you decided to ask God to make you and mold you and shape you and lead you. But something happened inside you there that you're no longer friendship, having friendship with the Lord now you're actually crossed the line with your friendship with the enemy of God. Now you're asking the enemy of God, the world out there, to shape you, to shape how you think, to shape your values, to mold you, to make you, and to lead you. And when you've done that, you become the enemy of God. And so, uh, but friends, I just want to say there is so much more blessing and being the friend of God. I mean, can you agree with that? There's so much more blessing in being the friend of God. So check this out. It says uh, in, uh, in verse 5, it says, Do you think the Scriptures have no meaning? Like, they say that God's passionate. Like, God is passionate for us. God is passionate that we would have, uh, our affection would be for Him. So it's saying that God is intensely, God is immensely desiring to have you, to have your heart to have you follow him. God is immensely passionate about that. And what is God's response to all of this? All the stuff we've been talking about, what is God's response? Like, for example, that we have been rescued and we have been ransomed and we've been made in a right relationship with God. And then we turned on that and we said, the very God that ransomed us and rescued us and put us in a right relationship with him, we said, you know what? I don't think I need you anymore. Like, I'm not, I don't want to follow you anymore. There's a greater treasure in following them than in following you. I mean, what is God's response then where he says, yeah, like you're like spiritually, like you're an adulterer. Like, what is God's response then where we're arguing and bickering and fighting? What is God's response to all this? People that have distanced themselves from God. Here it is in verse 6. Look at what it says. Crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. He says, but he gives what? He gives judgment? Is that what God is like? No, it says what he does here is he gives more grace, which tells us that, friends, that God is for us and God is not against us. That God wants you to be transformed by, by his grace. That whatever problem you have, 
whatever distance you are with God, whatever issues you have, whatever how much you're not praying, or you're praying with the wrong motives, you're fighting with everybody, you're full of conflict. He says, yeah, but God's grace is insanely great. See, when you are all that and more, God's grace is even more. In fact, whatever sin you can think of, God's grace is more than that. Sin is what he says. See, his grace just keeps coming and coming. We need to understand this because this is what God is like here. That God is a God that just keeps raining down grace upon grace, wave after wave after wave of grace pouring out upon you. Every problem, every predicament that you find yourself in, every pandemic, there is grace, grace, and more grace. And so God is a God that when you come to the end of your rope and you feel like there's nothing left, God says, I've got grace for the end of your rope. Grace where there's no measure. Grace, it's measureless. Grace that is limitless. In fact, the Bible says it in this way in Hebrews 4. It says, in times of need, what we need to do is just go to the throne of grace, and there's more grace for you. And so God's grace never runs out. And so with every problem that we face, he's saying here, every hurt, every conflict, everything you're dealing with, Grace is the answer. So the scriptures say this. God opposes the proud. This is what God is like. But he gives grace to the humble. So when pride shows up in my life and I feel like, God, I got this one. I can handle it. You stay right there, God. Just stay on your throne. I'm pretty smart. I've got this one figured out. God, I know that I can do it. I've got uh, the, the skill set to do this. When you begin to get puffed up with pride, the Bible says God's like, okay, God is opposed, distance from the proud, but he's engaging and helping and has favor upon the humble. And so how is it then, friends, how is it that we can grow closer to God? We've got five ways to do it. Five ways. You go to church, you want to be closer to God? This is it right here. You don't go to church, you want to be closer to God? This is it right here. So we're going to unpack five ways, five keys to growing closer to God. And here they are. First one is found in verse 7. It says, so humble or submit yourselves to God. So the first thing he's saying is choose humility. In other words, we need to let go. We need to let the Lord be large and in charge of our lives. Let the Lord be large and in charge of our lives. In other words, we need to say, I'm going to get off the throne of my own heart, and I'm going to make room for someone else. I, God, I realize that I'm not doing a very good job of being the king of my heart. I realize that I stink at it. I realize I, I, I'm pretty crummy at being the king of my heart. So why don't you be king of my heart, and you begin to rule, and you begin to reign, and I'll exit the throne and let you take the throne. Jesus would say, yep, that's my seat, is to be on the ruling on your heart. See, submit literally is a military word. It's a military word. It's, it's like a war word. It's a war word where you put yourself under, where you rank under, where you place yourself under, this military word. So if you want to follow Jesus and have the best, what you do is you're putting yourself under the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. To humble yourselves by submitting to God, James says, look, give in to God. Give him control. See, we live in a world, friends, really, you think about it, it's all about, hey, you promote yourself. It's all about you all the time. You assert yourself. And James says, well, 
you want to follow Christ, it's submitting yourself to him. In fact, the Bible says this in Romans 12. You probably maybe have heard of it. The scripture that says to present your body as a living sacrifice. What it means is like completely unrestrained, unconditionally giving yourself over to God. So number one, if you want to grow closer to God, you submit yourself, let the Lord be large and in charge. And here's the other reality, second reality that you need to realize. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's like, where did that come from? Like, where did devil talk come from out of nowhere? Like, okay, but think about it. If you're submitting and and yielding your life to God, you need to realize there's a real enemy out there. And so he says, look, you've got a new enemy. Again, this is a war term when it says resisted means resisting that you need to be prepared because you're going to be actually in a war. So you need to recognize that. So you need to recognize you have a legitimate, a formidable opponent. So you got an eternal foe, uh, Satan and his, and his dominion that follow him. And so you, you've got a battle that you're going to be engaged in. You've got to fight. There's spiritual combat. And so what he says is resist. In other words, don't run, don't, you know, but don't run to safe ground, but engage. What you need to do is you need to stand, fight, and firm. So again, it's war language when he says resist the devil. The Bible talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6 where it says, for we battle not, we, we battle not against. Now recognize there are things, friends, which we are against. That we need to be against. That's just nice about every. No, there's things you need to be against. We battle against, not against, flesh and blood and principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what we battle against. And so what James is saying is that we must stand because you're going to be taunted. You're going to face temptations from the enemy. And sometimes you just need to say, hey, hit the road in Jesus' name. You need to be full of that. And so, friends, this is a call, this is a call really for all of us to recognize that this generation needs to stand. This generation needs to stand against the enemy of your soul. We're not here to blend in. We're here to stand against the enemy of your soul. To resist what? What? To resist the bombardment of lies against our minds and our emotions. To resist the assault that there it will happen. So he says resist the enemy and he'll run from you. Well, how do you know that he's going to run from us? Well, because it says right there in your Bible that he's going to run from you. That's how you know. So, but we got to constantly be on guard. Think about it. You got to constantly be on guard, guarding your hearts, guarding your minds, resisting the lies. Because there are going to be lies that are going to be try to be downloaded into your, your brain. Uh, there are strongholds that happen. The Bible says, don't let the enemy, the, the devil, get a stronghold right into the church. Uh, a, a desire to control, to instill fear, to manipulate, really to wreck your life. So it says, look, knowing that you want your best life, you're going to have to resist, not run. The Bible says in John, First uh, John chapter 4, it says that, uh, it says, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. I mean, you got to realize you have more power within you than he has. So how do you resist the enemy? Obviously, you can't do it on your own. And we can't do it on, I mean, we'd be a fool to think that we could do it on our own and our own strength. So how do we do it? Well, we do it just like Jesus did it. Like, all we have to do is look, this is how Jesus rolled. This is how we roll. And how did he roll? How did he fight the, the devil? 
two ways, two offensive weapons. He had the Scripture, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so he'd say, it is written, it is written. And the devil would say, hey, Jesus, you know, why don't you throw your, uh, why don't you bow down and worship me? And say, it is written, it is written. So see, he built this into his life. And that's what we need to do, like build it into our lives that we can resist. We resist with Scripture. And how else did he, what else did he build into his life? Well, he built into his life prayer. Jesus would often withdraw, right, and pray. So this is how we, need, we, we do it. So we submit to God. We humbly submit to God. We resist the devil. And then number three, if you want to draw close to God, this is how you do it. It says, come close to God, and God will come close to you. Now think about that for a moment. This is, this is what God is like. He is a draw near God. He's not a stand at a distance God. He's a draw near to you God. So what have we done here this morning? We're drawing near to God, being in the tent, being in the, online and being in drive-in church. We're here to draw near to God. And there's many pulls on your life, many other things you could be doing this morning than being here. Being online, being on the cars, being in the, many things you can do, but you're here. And while you're here, you're drawing near to God. So you're getting, we're getting equipped. We're getting encouraged here. Uh, we experience a degree of, of, of community, which is an indispensable part of drawing uh, of what we need and having people that are embedded in our lives here and building community into our lives, regardless of how awkward and uncomfortable and how we want to stay isolated still and live in that space in a, in a pandemic. But we need to step into community, friends. And so to draw near to God, uh, and have you noticed, by the way, that a lot of times the only time we draw, we draw near to God is when we're in panic mode? You get the unexpected letter, the unexpected diagnosis, all hell breaks out in your life, and all of a sudden you want to draw near to God. What he's talking about here is not 911, emergency, oh, I got to draw near to God, life's falling apart. He's talking about drawing near to God as a lifestyle. I mean, this is, this is how you live your life. And so he's saying that that's how, that's how you draw near to God. And so we need to do the same. See, God is calling us out of isolation and into community to draw near to God. And so we need more scripture. We need more worship. We need to draw near. But the meaning primarily is not actually doing it publicly, but doing it privately like one-on-one. In other words, to come near to God so that you can actually get to know God, spending time with God, uh, reading the scripture, uh, firing up some prayer, having some worship. But in fact, the Bible puts it this way. It says that God rewards those who are half-hearted toward him. Is that what the Bible says? God rewards those who are just casual. Or does it say that God rewards those that diligently seek him? That's who God rewards. And so if you want the, the, the ultimate reward of God, that's what you do. Is you got to seek God. So, But now let's reverse this whole thought about draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It's like, you know what? I, I, I don't have time for that. Drawing near to God. I just want God to draw near to me. I mean, he's God. Like, can he draw near to me? Well, the scripture says, that, look, it needs to initiate with you. Like, this is how God operates. It needs to initiate with you that you be the one to take the first step. 
that God's already shown that he loves you and Jesus died for you. So in this context here, you take the first step. You make the first move. And God guarantees that he will come after you. We think of the prodigal son in the Gospels there where this guy's a complete and utter knucklehead. He burns his inheritance. He basically tells his dad, Dad, just go to hell and give me all the money. Give me my inheritance. I don't care if you die. I don't care what happens to you. He's like that. And so he does that and goes and does his thing. He's a party animal, like out of control. I mean, waking up with a lamp shed, a lamp, one of those lamp things on his head, out of control. That's who he is. Finally, he wakes up. He crashes. He hits rock bottom. He comes to his senses, the Bible says, and he thinks to himself, I screwed my dad. I was a total idiot. I'm here with the stinking pig pen. Pig pen, and then if I could only go home. And he says, so he started to rehearse his speech in his head. And he's starting to rehearse it, and he says, okay, uh, I'm not worthy to be called his son, and what am I going to say? And now he's broken. Now he's humbled. Now he's begging to come home, and he's going to be restored. And here's what the Bible says. Watch this. It says that when he was a long way off, it says, when his father saw him a long way off. So look at the picture there. There's the guy that's burned his bridges with with the Father. This is a picture of us with God. And there's the Father looking out on the horizon. I wonder if today's going to be the day. Maybe today's the day. Yesterday wasn't. But I wonder if today's going to be. Where's my son? I think think that's him. That's my son. He He says, let's party. Kill the fatted calf. Let's get the ring for his finger. Let's get the robe. Let's do it all. My son is that was far as coming home. And it says this. It says that in that culture, you never, you never, men never did this. They would never pull up their robes and begin to run. It's considered the most undignified things imaginable in that culture. It says he pulls up his robe. And the father is running after the son, sprinting. After the sun. And so the scripture says this draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Watch, friends, if you just take a step toward God, God will sprint toward you. See, that's what God is like. That's what God is like. And so the Bible says here the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's God running after. The, the wayward son, full of grace, full of compassion, full of love, full of mercy, coming after him. And then he says in the next verse, wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between you and your God. He said, look, look at your hands. You want to draw near to God. It's like, look, first of all, at your hands, which is your conduct, your actions. He's saying, don't take it lightly what you've done with your hands. He's saying, look, look. Don't stop there. He says, also purify your heart. Because you can look at your hands. I can say, hey, look at my hands. Like, I've kind of faked everybody out pretty good. And uh, look at what I've, all the stuff I've washed myself of here. My hands are doing pretty good. My actions, my conduct, pretty good. And so James says, no, 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 no. We're not stopping there. He says, now, look at your heart, too. Look at your heart. So, oh, yeah, okay, my heart. Oh, gosh, that's a whole other story. So says, look, be serious not just about your outward actions, but also your inward desires. Says, look at your heart there and pay attention to your heart, to the desires of your heart. So what he's saying is, 
Like the desires of our heart, we have these internal dialogues going on from the moment we wake up in the morning. I think about all the people, all, all the conversations you have that reflect your heart. So that's what he's saying that we need to do. So if you want to draw near to God and be closer to God, yeah, you submit to God. You resist the devil. You draw near. But also you got to take sin seriously. Don't just blow it off like it's nothing. Because the reality is this. You can confess your sin, which is just to say the same thing God says. Or what we can become pros at is kind of concealing that thing there, kind of hiding it, kind of covering it, kind of holding on to it, continuing in it. Or, as the Bible says, we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just then to forgive us. All we have to do is confess he forgives us of all unrighteousness. So God is calling us, friends, God is calling us to wash our hands every day before the Lord. And then he continues about taking it seriously, and he says, let there be tears, let there be sorrow. In other words, let there be sorrow over your sin. In other words, he's saying this. You need to be real with yourself. Just Can you just get real with yourself? Can you be honest with yourself and how broken that we really are, how broken I am, and how much we're in need of a Savior? And look at the coldness and callousness and compromise in your own life. And can we be sorrowful over that and take that seriously? We do. We get closer to God. And I close with this. Verse 10. As the worship team comes up, humble yourselves before God, and he will lift you up in honor. Hmm. Doesn't that sound like the opposite of how it should work? Like if I humble myself and I tell you what uh, the reality of Rod Collins and you knew who I really was, you probably think way less of me. Or if a father with his kids tells him the, the reality of what he did, that I was wrong, it was my fault, I made a mistake, and you're thinking like, oh, no, I can't do that. The kids won't respect me. And James is saying, no, they'll respect you even more. They'll like, they'll honor you. God will like lift you. It's like the, the exact opposite of what we think. So he says here to broken and distressed and depressed people, that if you would only humble yourself, God will lift you up. It's like the way up is like to, to go down. The way up is to go low. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, in the presence of God, at a place he could go no higher, being worshipped by the angels of heaven. and says, look at him and what he did. And Paul said, let that be inside of you. And what did he do? He stepped down. And then he stepped down again and again. And again, and again, and again. And he who could go no higher went to a place he could go no lower to a cross and dies as a criminal for the sins of the world. And it says this, has the audacity to say, what you see in that, you let that be in you. Humble yourselves, God will lift you up. Jesus was humbled, and God lifted him up. 
See, friends, we can draw closer to God. And it's pretty obvious that James just laid it out. He gives us more grace. Maybe this morning you, you, would, you would say, God is stirring my heart to just take a step. If I would just take a step, God is a God that he's going like, to go crazy. And he's going to sprint. He's going to run after you because that's who he is. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Let's pray. And so, Father, thank you that you've made a way. You've made a way to the Almighty that we could be the friend of God. We don't need to be the foe. Whatever we think, we could be the friend of God. I pray that we would just say, yeah, I want you to be on the throne. I want you to be large and in charge. I want to submit my way to you. Father, I want to make time for you. I want to humble myself. I'm not going to blow off stuff I do anymore. I'm going to take it more serious. I'm going to resist the devil, and I want to draw close to you. And Father, would you receive me unto yourself? In Jesus' name, amen.